All right, so tonight, uh, Lord willing, we will be finishing out chapter 6 of the Confession of Faith. If you're using the hymnal, it's on page 923, chapter 6, and we'll be covering paragraphs 3 to 6 of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. And last week, we focused on paragraphs 1 and 2, namely on the origin of sin, that is, where it came from. Uh, who can tell us uh, about the origin of sin? And I'm looking for uh, what the what the what the act is by which man fell into sin, what led up to that act, and also what that was representative of. Like what was what was actually the pursuit? So real simple, right down the middle, like five year old Sunday school answer. What was the act whereby man fell into sin, Andrew? Um, uh, Yeah, well, Adam and Eve eating their forbidden fruit. Very good. All right. Now, a little little bit of a step up from that. What 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 led up to that? What was the what was the initial cause of them eating the forbidden fruit? Satan tempted them to eat the fruit. Very good. So we're, we're basic here. Um, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Now, um, who can tell me what it is that was represented in that act? In other words, what was it that Adam and Eve specifically desired to get from eating the fruit? The sin was not eating the fruit in and of itself. It was what they're pursuing. So what, what is it that they're pursuing? James. Being like God. In what way? Knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil? Joseph? Almost deciding what's good and evil. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make up my own mind on what's right and wrong. Yep. That's what's meant by that, that act of knowing good and evil. So that's the origin of sin. That's where it came from. A, a, uh, a temptation to not only do what God commanded not to be done, but to, in effect, be your own God. To determine for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And we talked about that, and then we moved on to the effects of sin. Uh, and that's, what we, that's something else we discussed last week. How does sin affect our relationship to God? How does sin affect our relationship to God? Yeah, for It corrupts it and is irredeemable without Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, exactly right. What, why? Because without God as our, or Jesus as our mediator, Everything we do, even good works, is ultimately for ourselves. Yeah, very good. All right, what does sin do to our relationships with each other? Clouds it. Clouds it, okay. Can somebody add to that? That's that's right. Dusty? Well, it destroys it and it makes it so that humans kind of argue with each other instead of being in communion. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it muddies things, it murks them up, like Thomas said, and then it, it actually goes to the next step. It can, it can and often does destroy our relationships with one another. What about with, what our, with our work, what we're called to do? Easy answer, it's just like the other ones. Makes work painful. Yeah, it, 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 it severs, it hurts our relationship with that as well. And it destroys our bodies and souls. Now, last week... We saw at the end of the lesson that even in such a dark chapter is as Genesis chapter 3, there remains yet hope. Um, can somebody please tell me what is the hope that's laid out for us 
in Genesis chapter 3. I'm looking for chapter and verse. This is a verse that we should all know. Dusty. Uh, isn't it Genesis 3.15? Yeah, what's that verse? It talks about um, where God tells Eve that her offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And basically showing how there will be a savior that will crush and defeat him. Yeah, now what else happens in the crushing of the head of the serpent? The heel is bruised. The heel is bruised. So it's a foretelling of one that will come to, to conquer sin, to conquer the enemy. But in the process, he will be wounded. So that is the hope. Uh, how is that hope ultimately realized? We all, we all know the answer to this. It's in Christ, as Dusty already said. That's a prophecy. That's the first prophecy in the Bible of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one more question for review from Genesis 3 before we move on. How is that promise, excuse me, how is that hope rather received? And how do we know it was received by Adam and Eve? Disparager. It was received by faith, um, and we know because Adam uh, named his wife Eve, which means life giver. Yeah, so he's he's in the naming of his wife, expressing hope, expressing <laughs> belief, faith, in the promise that God makes in Genesis 3, 15. So it is received by faith. And so we see from the outset uh, of the scriptures, justification, salvation has always been by faith alone in the promises of God. That is not, um, that has always been the case. That has not uh, ever changed. And so what we're going to look at tonight as we look at the remaining sections of chapter 6 of the Confession are these three topics. We're going to look at the imputation of sin. That's going to be the main point of the Confession in chapter 6, paragraph 3. And I'll give a couple of Bible passages that we'll work through under that heading. We're going to look at the corrupting nature of sin. That's chapter 6, paragraphs 4 and 5. And then lastly, uh, this doesn't really need to be well explained. You all know this well, but we'll, we'll address the penalty of sin in chapter 6, paragraph 6. So let's start with the imputation of sin. And I'll start by just reading uh, chapter 6 of the Confession, paragraph 3. They, referring to Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. And the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. So the first thing we want to consider is this word imputed. Uh, it's generally thought of as a, as a technical term. Uh, does anybody know what it means? What's it mean to impute something? I can only think of one non-theological case where I've used this term. So it's not something we use every day, yeah. I was just thinking of somebody like taking a needle and stabbing it into somebody. And like, that's impaled. That's it. Well, that's actually... <laughs> so you're thinking like an injection. Yeah. That is uh, a different term. That would be infused. Okay. So we're looking for imputed. What does imputed mean? Josiah. Like a force will be given. Close. Fort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so the idea of injection 
is infused righteousness, and that's actually not at all what we believe. And I'll explain what the difference is uh, later, but yeah? So, kind of like Josiah was saying, isn't it, because when, uh, somewhere in Romans, I don't know where, it's talking about Jesus imputes his rightness to us, and then the he gets our wrath, so he's giving it to us. Mm-hmm. James, you want to help her out? It means like you're credited with something. That's exactly right. You're credited. It's credited to somebody's account. So like if um, the, the, the non-theological way in which I would use this, this word imputed would be like if somebody uh, does something mean to me, something I don't like, I'm going to guess what their motive is. I'm going to impute it their motive. I'm going to impute their motive. I'm going to, to attribute a negative feeling to that. I don't really know that that's their motive, but that's what I'm crediting towards them. That's what I'm going to treat them as if it's true. Uh, imputed righteousness, and I should go ahead and just define this now because it's a really important category to get down. Infused righteousness is a Roman Catholic doctrine, and so is infused uh, sin. And that's the idea that, that, that righteousness is worked in you by God, through means of prayers, confessions, the sacraments, all these other things. And so there's like a quantitative increasing in your righteousness that's being uh, uh, injected into you. That is not what we believe. Imputed righteousness is the Protestant doctrine that we are credited with righteousness that is not ours. It is an alien righteousness. It's given to us by Christ. So in that same way, we're saying that Adam and Eve's sin is imputed or credited to all of those that would descend from them. Uh, It says, uh, essentially what the confession is teaching here is that all of Adam and Eve's offspring down to today are now born with a corrupted nature. Their sin was imputed to us. And there's two grounds for this imputation of Adam's guilt. One is given in this paragraph. It's that they are the root of all mankind. Um, they are uh, the father and mother of all mankind that would descend from them. And so even though they are saved by the promises of God, by faith, they still have a remaining sin nature and it is passed down. But also, and this has gotten into really more in chapter 7 of the confession, but it's worth bringing up here. It's imputed to us uh, because Adam is not only our biological great, 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 and I'm losing count, but you get the idea, granddad, but he is also our federal head, meaning he represented us in the garden. He acted on our behalf. Now, on the one hand, we see uh, the, the impacts of the fall on mankind literally Every uh, single day, I've heard it said, I can't remember by who, that the fall of man is one of the only doctrines in the Bible that doesn't really need to be argued for. You just, you just see it. It's everywhere. But while I agree with that, we don't want to make the mistake of doing our theology based on just what we perceive or just what we can understand. Rather, we want to do our theology according to what God has revealed in Scripture. So let's see if this idea of the imputation of Adam's sin is, in fact, what Scripture teaches. Now, in Genesis, uh, what did God say would be the result of sin? Death. 
Okay. What is the very next passage after the fall of man in the garden? Like the next oh, chapter. Like Cain. Yeah. And, and what happened with Cain and Abel? Cain. Yeah, so death, right? It immediately follows. Um, now, that itself is a strong piece of evidence, gentlemen. That itself is a strong piece of evidence that the corruption of Adam and Eve's nature is passed on to their children. But we'll find even more evidence for that. Would somebody please read for us Genesis 6 5? Genesis 6, chapter, or excuse me, Genesis 6, verse 5. Yeah, go ahead, Francis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yeah, so we see that, that three chapters later, the intention of the thoughts of the heart of man are only evil continually. So that's Genesis 4, Genesis 6. Let's look at Genesis chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to have anybody read this long list of names because that's cruel. Uh, but let's see. Uh, if I can just go, everybody get in your Bible, go to Genesis 5. And we're just going to go down the line on the back row. Uh, we'll start with uh, Camden and then we'll work because you guys have already answered some things. Start with Camden, go to Harris, Ford, Hanuel, and on down as far as we need. I just need the last three words of each of these verses I'm going to give you, okay? I'm going to give them to you. See, all right. So we're in Genesis chapter 5. Camden, can you give me the last three words of verse 5? Last three words of verse 5. Genesis 5, 5. Okay. Uh, Harris, verse 8. Ford, verse 11. Hanuel, verse 14. Thomas, you want to take a guess on verse 17? Yeah, 20. 27. Mr. Theron. All right, Mr. Cancino. All right. So the, entire, the entirety of Genesis chapter 5 is saying that the results of sin are spreading. They are going everywhere. And he died over and over again. Yeah, there's one exception, Enoch. I know. That's a, although that's a supernatural exception and intervention, the normal course of things is this passing on. Now, where does that death come from? It comes from sin. Are we told anything specific about the sins of the people who died in Genesis 5? No. The, the, the implication there is that they have inherited a corrupted sin nature. And we see uh, one explanation for this in Genesis 5, verse 3. Genesis 5, 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Does that stand out to anybody? Any, anything sound different than how we would normally use those phrases? How was mankind originally made? After the image and likeness of God. Genesis 5.3 says that Adam's offspring were made after his image and his likeness. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the descendants of Adam are no longer made in the image of God. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says very plainly after this fact, even Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, that mankind are still made in the image of God. What I am saying, though, is that that image is now marred and corrupted through Adam, who is our federal head. So we see this, this um, 
This is the interpretation of Genesis 5. Now the question is, is this the right interpretation of Genesis 5? Am I correct about this? Well, it happens to be the Apostle Paul's interpretation of Genesis chapter 5. So let's look over at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verses 12 to 18. I'll go ahead and read this for us. This is Paul's inspired commentary on that passage. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin... So death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death, that's the result of sin, reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam, who was a type of the one that was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. All right. The text says that sin came into the world through one man. That's Adam. And the result of that sin spreads to all men. That's the plain service reading of the text. And so some way or another, sin moved from Adam to all who descended from him. That doesn't necessarily prove imputation yet. However, the same relationship that, we, that is laid out that we have to Adam is also laid out in parallel the relationship that we have with Christ. As, as is said in, in, chap, in verse 14, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. He was a foreshadow of Christ in a sense. And then also, uh, the free gift is transferred to those who would believe on the same basis that the sin was. And as has already been said, we receive Christ's righteousness, righteousness by imputation. Therefore, the equation is our relationship to our, our benefit from Christ is on the same grounds as our condemnation from Adam, which means imputation. You guys follow that logic there? Does that make sense? All right, so that's how we know that we have um, received Adam's sin by imputation because it's in the same way as we received Christ's righteousness also by imputation. All right, so that's a, a long explanation, but I think it's helpful to understand what we're saying when we say that we uh, have fallen in Adam's sin. Now, one other thing the confession says at this, in this paragraph that I just want to throw out there and make sure we're tracking. It says that this corrupted nature was conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Hanuel, what do you suppose that phrase ordinary generation in there is? Why is that there? Okay. It's for everyone. 
right? Is there any exception? Could there maybe be one exception? Yes, Jesus. Okay. Now, why would why would you use the clause "ordinary generation" to de- designate an exception for Jesus? Because he's not ordinary generation. Yes, he he has a biological descent from Adam and Eve. Luke chapter three explicitly links him to to Adam and his genealogy, and yet it was not by means of ordinary generation. This is a total side note, but you all will hear challenged from. Uh, people that say that they're Christian, but the, you, know, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth and things like that don't matter. This is why the virgin birth matters. <laughs> because Jesus was not born by ordinary generation from Adam, Adam and Eve. That's why he does not receive original sin. That's why he's able to be a savior and a redeemer. But that's a side point. We've got to move quickly now. All right, the corruption of sin. Uh, we'll start by reading the confession again, and then we'll look back at Romans and also Romans 7. Uh, So the Confession, chapter 6, paragraphs 4 and 5. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. So what the Confession is saying there, in a nutshell, we've got a sin nature, and from that sin nature proceed all of our sins. This is the same analogy, illustration I gave last week. Uh, When you plant an apple seed, as soon as you plant that apple seed, what's going to come forth is an apple tree. You don't have to wait for it to produce apples for it to be an apple tree. It is by nature that, therefore, it produces apples. In the same way, we are born as sinners. We do not become sinners when we commit our first sin. Rather, that sin flows out of our nature. Uh, The next paragraph, the corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. All right. So what is the extent of the corruption that we face as a result of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden? Total. (coughs) There is um, not a single aspect of who we are that is not in some sense, some way or another, tainted by sin. And this is what the scriptures teach about the corrupting nature of sin. Let's see that again uh, back in Romans chapter 5, just for the sake of my voice. Would somebody please read verses 6 to 10? Romans 5, 6 to 10. Yeah, go ahead, Francis. And while we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we are enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Alright, so what are some words that stand out that are used in this passage how are the how are people described? What are some words that jump out at you? Weak. Weak. Ungodly. Ungodly. Sinners. Okay. And anybody but you two. Um, another one. <clears throat> Enemies. Enemies. Right. This is this is our identity. This is our fundamental natural position. Now again, that does not mean that sinners are unable to do anything good. 
I know plenty of really nice, really friendly, unrepentant sinners. James. When it says at the right time, does that just mean because we had no hope? Why does it say the right time? Yeah, so that's a reference to when Christ died for us. So it was in, uh, Paul would say, I think it's in Galatians, that it was in the fullness of time. Basically, um, there's a lot of Old Testament prophecy uh, that if you track the timeline, it's in the first century. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole timeline we can do out of Daniel chapter 9 that lands exactly on Christ's death on the cross. Um, so that's, that's what it's in reference to. Good question. All right. So it, what, what we're not saying here when we say that all of our deeds are corrupted by sin is that all of our deeds are as bad as they could possibly be or that unsaved people can't do anything good. That's not what we believe. What we do believe, though, is what Isaiah says, all of our righteous deeds are like, and I love the ESV, but polluted garment just is not as good as filthy rag. Okay, um, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, uh, as the as the the king's English would render it. That's what we're saying. Even the best that we do is, in some sense, tainted by sin. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys here. Yeah, Jim, just you said like unrepentant people can do good things, right? But they can't, right? Like nothing that they do. So there's a. We're going to get to that more in depth when we get to the chapter on of good works. But I'll give you the short answer. There's basically a paradigm. Uh, there's a, a quadrilateral that I look at it through. You can do uh, a good thing for the right reason. They can't do that. That's the highest. You can do a good thing for a bad motive. They can do that. You can do a bad thing for a good motive. They, can, they can't do that either because they, they, don't, they don't have the right motive. Does that make sense? But they can do outwardly, objectively good-looking things. Things that would be in conformity to God's law. Uh, but they can't ultimately obey it because they're not doing it for the glory of God. And so I'm going to be honest with you guys. This is one point that when I was y'all's age and a little bit older, I would have pushed back on very hard. Um, and I'm going to tell you how I would have pushed back on it and why I was wrong. Um, because I'm not saying that anyone else here thinks this, but I'm just walking through, for example, throwing myself under the bus here. Um, when I was probably from senior year in high school to a couple years after college, it was my identity. It was how I perceived myself to be the best friend I could possibly be to everyone who was in my circle of friends. I wanted to be the one that they called at one o'clock in the morning because they weren't good to drive and they needed somebody to help them. And so I was that guy. I wanted to be the guy that they... Um, you know, had just lost their, their, their job and they needed a place to stay for a week or two weeks or whatever. And I let people stay on my couch. And I was the one that I did everything I possibly could. Now, there are some people that delight in doing good things for others so that they can put them in their debt, right? So now you owe me and I can lord that over you. That wasn't me. There are other people who like to do those always outwardly nice things so that they can brag about it and, and make a, a nice reputation for themselves. That also wasn't me. So by every metric that I could perceive at that time, I was just being a nice guy. What I did not realize until later is that if I wasn't the one that they called, if I wasn't the one who got to do the nice thing, I was livid. I was very upset. 
because they were taking from me. Because that doing the nice things and, 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 and being generous and being a good friend was how I was able to sleep at night. They were robbing me from doing what I wanted to do. If they got the help somewhere else, I was mad. Does that make sense? I wasn't doing it for them. I was doing it for my own peace of mind. Even in that, I was being selfish and I didn't recognize it. And so I use that as an example that you guys will meet people that will blow your categories who from everything you can see, they're not Christian, but they're, they're nice. If they're not doing it for the glory of God, it's not ultimately good. As, as Josiah's question raised and gave us uh, a chance to discuss. Now we'll, we'll end on this, is that that corruption of nature remains, as the confession teaches, even in us, even in regenerate Christians. And this is, on the one hand, one of the most frustrating things that you will experience in your life, because Romans 7 is true, and it is one of the most comforting things that you will ever hear in your life. Simultaneously, extremely frustrating and extremely comforting. So let's look at Romans 7. This is the Apostle Paul talking. I'll just pick it up in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. You will have a lifelong wrestle to do the right thing. And you will have lifelong struggles with various sins that you can't believe you did again. And you will be tempted by your lack of progress to think, therefore, that means I didn't believe enough. I'm not really a Christian. I've failed. Something like that. But notice what tense is Paul talking in here? Is it past tense? I did the things I did not want to do. Is it future? I will do the things I do. No, it's present tense. If the Apostle Paul still has this ongoing sin struggle, the fact that you also have that should be uh, of great comfort to you when you're tempted to think that you have lost the battle. <laughs> the, the, the battle is, is never over in this life. We will fight this the rest of our days, and you need to remember that. Now, that doesn't make it okay. Right? We still want to work on progressive sanctification and getting better. What I'm trying to say is don't lose hope. Um, Dr. Phillips likes to tell this story about he was visiting one of our, one of our elderly members, and I know we're over time, so I'll, I'll end on this because it's kind of a, a, a lighter moment. And he says to the, to the older woman, she's like in her 80s, 
how can I be praying for you? And she says, Pastor, just, just pray that I'd continue to repent of my sins. The temptations of the flesh. And he says, you're 85 years old and in a nursing home. What temptation could you possibly fall into? Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> it's a lifelong struggle. But there's hope that's at the end of this passage. I'm just going to skip down and read this. Thanks be to God, or excuse me, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He delivers us from the penalty of sin at the moment that we believe. Adam and Eve are delivered from the penalty of sin at the moment they believe. And, and we are progressively, for the rest of our lives, gradually, revealed from the power of sin. And ultimately, one day, because of what Christ has done, we will be relieved from the very presence of sin. All right, let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it tells us about our condition, about our need of salvation. But not only do you tell us of our need, but you tell us of the way that you've provided and met that need in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for my young friends here that you would help them all to grow in their grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would walk more closely with him today than they did yesterday and tomorrow than they did today, that they would uh, grow in their own personal holiness as is pleasing to you. Would, we, would you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.